0: It refers to living with God-given confidence. Confidence isn't in ourselves. Our confidence is in our, in our sinful ability to keep God's law or to be obedient to God or submit to God or to love God or to love our neighbor. That's not where the, the, the heading holding our head up high is from. My dear listeners, thank you for this episode of That They Might Know. We're doing a series on the book of Romans right now by the Apostle Paul. And in this particular lesson, the title being The Object of Saving Faith, we're going to take a, a look at how men who are born in a, to a, a sinful humanity transfer their trust from themselves as sinful men in pride and rebellion, transfer that trust to the Lord Jesus Christ, to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that you'll be blessed by this episode and that you'll see where faith belongs and how that transfer takes place and the evidences and the fruit that it bears in the, in the person who has saving faith. So now, hear this message given. On Romans chapter 4, beginning at verse 23, and through into Romans chapter 5. Dear Heavenly Father, handling the Word of God is not like just talking from our own head or heart. Talking about your Word is, your Word is, it's truth, it's, it's understood by God alone, and apart from your Holy Spirit, that enables the mind of sinful men to see the things of god this is it's impossible apart from the intercession of god it's impossible apart from the holy spirit we've been our minds have been darkened our our the way we conceive of things and understand principles it's twisted and perverted and sin has made it impossible for men to understand the truth Where does that leave us? That leaves us dependent upon a God Who must intercede for us Open our hearts and our minds Enlighten us by the work of the Spirit To see things that otherwise remain in the darkness Lord, our request today is that we might see things That are too, too great for us Too, too light, too bright I pray, dear Heavenly Father, that you would grant us the spirit of understanding, the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, to take the things of Christ, God, and deliver them to us. I ask these things for your honor and your glory, for our good, in Jesus' name. Our lesson today is taken from Romans chapter 4, beginning at verse 23, and carrying through to 517. And I quote, Now not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our wrongdoings, and was raised because of our justification. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we celebrate in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also celebrate in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous person, though perhaps for the good person someone might even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also celebrate in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all mankind because all sin. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not accounted against anyone when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the violation committed by Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the gracious gift is not like the offense. For if by the offense of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one offense, resulting in condemnation. condemnation. But on the other hand, the gracious gift arose from many offenses, resulting in justification. For if by the offense of the one, death reigned through the one, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one Jesus Christ well this is certainly not a an easy passage there are no easy passages because as I said in my in the prayer we're, de- we're dealing with something that has to be explained by God not because God doesn't speak plainly or clearly not because it's uh, spoken in a way, written in a way that is hard to understand. It's because of the lack that there is in sinful men, in corrupted hearts and minds, which we all are because of the fall, because of our rebellious nature, because of the condition we're in and being separated from the God who is truth. Except God give men the ability to understand, except man God make clear who he is. It's impossible to know the invisible God. God is in a different dimension than we are. God is too big to see. Picture something infinite. How far away can you get get from something that's infinite to see it? I mean, it's kind of a, a ridiculous way of looking at it, but that's the fact is that God is everywhere. How can you see something that's everywhere? And we're not even just talking about different dimensions. Like heaven, right now is in a different dimension. Really, is the best way to look at it. We're so tiny. I mean, how long it would take to cross the known, seeable universe? You know, with, with the with the telescopes that we have, and we're able to look into galaxies and galaxies. Can't even fathom the size of it. And that God can hold in his in a in a minuscule part of his being, you know. I mean, it's just it's it's ridiculous to try to comprehend this, and now we're gonna like think that we can see God. Um, it's just I'm making a point here, and the point is being able to understand things that are just too big for us, and that's why the prayer, that's why the reliance upon God, that's who we're looking to right now to make sense of this. The Apostle Paul, who received great revelation, sat down and penned this letter to the Romans. Now today, as we look at verse 23 from chapter 4, this is what that says. Now, not for his sake only was it written, speaking of Abraham, that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Who, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Let's take this in bite-sized pieces. Not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be credited. Little, little uh, correction I'm going to make here. From an observation from the context, not in, in verse 23 it says, "Not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him." Abraham was told by God, you know, look into the star into look into the sky, see the stars in the heavens they are like the sand on the seashore. that's what your descendants are going to be." And that wasn't written for him to read. It was no Bible. Moses wasn't born yet. He wouldn't be born for hundreds of years yet. And so he had the word of God spoken in a dream. It doesn't matter how it happened or how he saw it in a vision. It, it wasn't written in a book. Now, am I criticizing the word? No. Understand this is an English translation and uh, it was not written in English, it was written in Hebrew and there's ancient manuscripts that we have that we can read and examine and understand exactly what it means in Hebrew. Does it take a Hebrew scholar? No. The Bible is comprehensible to those who have the spirit of the living God. We're looking in context of the Bible right now, that's what I'm speaking from. I'm, I'm speaking from the context of Genesis. As a whole, and we understand that there was no scriptures at the time of Abraham. Now, people who write this, who translate scripture from one language to another, they're not commentating on it. They are translating word for word. But it has to be also those words sometimes have to be taken in context. If you just read a lexicon, if you just read... A Hebrew text, you, and you, if you understand the language, and I'm not a, an expert, but I've, I've done enough study and enough reading that the experts you know, will tell you that this word in Hebrew, for instance, may have two meanings, or in the Greek, two or three or four, seven meanings for this word. Different words. Hebrew's not like Greek, but the, the, the word may take on different meanings depending on the language structure. And depending on the context, sometimes that's the meaning that you use of that word. Now this text right here in Romans chapter 4, which is written in Greek, is, uh, has much of that going on. And the context you know, should tell any reader that Abraham lived before Moses and the writing of the law and the beginning of the script, the compilation of the scriptures that have been put together. So when it says, not for his sake only was it written, and then goes on and says, for our sake, to whom it it will be credited, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Now we can look back 2,000 years, and we understand the things that are written in the scriptures And we can understand that it was written so that we might believe. Just a small point being made here. Abraham did not have the scriptures. They were written for us. I'm not going to go into all the Greek and explain that. I'm just saying, step back. You have to step back sometimes. You have to meditate on the word. And when you meditate on the word... You may see things like this, and you may question. Understand you're not reading it in the original language, and translations are not perfect. They're accurate, and they can be understood to the person who studies all the scripture. And even if something was written, and it wasn't translated, perhaps perfectly as it could have been, the word's still there, the meaning is there, it's just not Exactly an exact translation That's why there are multiple translations And you take one over another And every translation may have a little something Which if you study all the scripture You will still come to the right conclusion Just like we're doing right now We're coming to the conclusion That Abraham did not have the scripture And so it was told to him He took God at his word, and we're talking about faith right now, and faith is taking God at his word, whether it's he's actually speaking and you hear the words, or it's written down in a book, and you take what he wrote down in a book to be concrete, true, and something that you can rely on. That is the fact. That is the important fact. So not for Abraham's sake alone was it Eventually written what he spoke to him because what he spoke to him is now written he just wasn't aware of it at the time but now he's in heaven and certainly he probably has memorized the entire bible in his head and he can think back and he can understand what I'm about to tell you concerning the written word for our sakes it was written now, it was written or was it written in the, in the Greek means to commit to writing, to make yourself liable, to keep your word. We understand that when we say something, it's one thing. Then there's shaking hands in our culture. And then there's putting it down on paper where a lawyer and a courtroom can intercede and say, wait a minute, you gave your word here. That's a whole different practice and that's the con- that that illustration is a worldly one i'm not going to put god into that box except to say that god made a covenant with himself god made a contract with himself he put it in writing why because he wants to give us confidence in what he said he's he's he knows that we have formed in our in our conscience in our mind with courtrooms and government, which is all an institution by God, by the way, you know, those institutions govern us and they keep us on track. And so we understand, as in 2 Peter, according to Peter, he he wrote, so we have the prophetic word made more sure. What's that mean? Why, Why is the prophetic word now made more sure? The writer of the Hebrews put it this way, for... When God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear an oath by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. So, therefore, this is what God said. I will bless you. I will greatly multiply you. He swore by himself, the writer says. He goes on, God's word is far more, and I want to make this clear, God's word is far more than an instruction manual on how to live life. It is that, but it is far more than, it is a promise of eternal life to all those who believe. Men say things like, my word is my bond. I heard somebody who was in the mafia and the, he had his cut face covered and he was speaking on the news say that one time. He said it over and over. My word is my bond. The promise of the Bible is God saying, my word is my bond. God is perfect. God is infinite. God is omnipotent. God is omniscient. God is not man. When a man says it and a sinful man says it, which we all are, that's one thing. When God says it, when God gives his word as his bond, now that's something we need to take to the bank. That's something we need to rely upon completely. So the author continues in Hebrews, who said, For people swear an oath by one greater than themselves. And with them, an oath serving as confirmation is an end of every dispute. You know, this is what we do we, we swear, we, we write it down, we sign our, our, our signature into it. In the same way, God desiring even more to demonstrate to the heirs of the promise the fact that his purpose is unchangeable, confirmed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to hold firmly to the hope set before us. That's Hebrews 6, 16 through 18. So in other words, he's, he's swearing an oath. He can't lie. He's making a promise. And what's the purpose of the promise and the oath? He wants to encourage us firmly in the hope set before us. Hope is faith in the future. Faith, what we can't see. We can never see what we take by faith. In this case, hope is what we can't see because it hasn't even happened yet. Total salvation hasn't taken place. Uh, the, the judgment hasn't come. We we're not standing before the white throne yet. But he's giving a promise. He's taking an oath. And the oath is that you you will be justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. When God plants his word within a person's heart, that word becomes the assurance and the motivation for living life for God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what's the main point in what's being said here? Why the promise to Abraham? Why the promise to us? Why the swearing of the oath is just this? The object of saving faith is first what God has spoken. Second, it is what God has written. God has bound himself with an oath. God has bound himself by a covenant and a contract. He said it, he wrote it, he sealed it. With these closing words of Romans 4, Paul begins to make his case for moving on from our introduction by faith into the grace wherein we stand to something far greater. and That's what I want us to go into now. Right now, we're talking about the issue of faith. We're talking about the, in the promise of God. What's the object of our faith? It's in God's promise. God's promises written in his word. Unique book written by a unique person. That takes us to Romans 5, 1-5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Grace is undeserved merit. It's getting something you don't deserve. We don't deserve to be justified. We don't deserve to stand before God as holy, pure, clean as the driven snow. Never had a bad thought. Never had a bad motive. Never had any bad intentions. Never had a bad attitude. Nothing bad. Nothing. Absolutely clean. Never committed a single sin. This is how we stand before God, and this is how we have peace with God. How? Our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not anything we've done. I mean, just look at ourselves. Look at the world. It's in a flame of fire with war and prejudice and bigotry and hatred and all kinds of evil in families, in business, in friendships, all across the globe, all across the world. In small ways, like family, in big ways, like countries. It's just a flame. evil and hatred if we want to be honest if we want to see things the way they are rather than the way we want them to be i mean the world is not a hallmark card it's not everybody's good and everybody's just if you just listen to your own heart and your your own ways and you just do that then everything will turn out all right well the world is not that way people want to say "I, i don't understand i don't understand god how can he do evil things to good people where are the good people Paul's not saying there's good people. God's not saying there's good people. God wrote down what God told him to write down, and God said we're not good. You see, this is why justification has to be by faith, and we have to have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, because we're not there. This is a good point. It's not a bad point. If you look in the mirror and you see a dirty face, don't walk away and think that your face is clean. See that it's dirty and understand how God wants to clean it. Because it's through our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. As we stand in grace. We stand on a rock, on a bedrock that's solid and true because it is true. Because the next phrase is is unbelievably good. It says, and we exalt, E-X-U-L-T, we exalt in hope of the glory of God. What does that mean? Well, let's break it down. Peace with God means two enemies become friends. Grace means salvation is not earned, it's undeserved merit, sins penalties in exchange for the righteousness of Christ. How could that be earned? How could the righteousness of Christ be earned? We, you know, we can't earn heaven through our, 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 our eternal life through our own righteousness, let alone earning it through Christ's righteousness. It has to be given. It's a gift. Exaltation is what we do having when we stand in, in grace. What's that mean? Well, exalt in the Greek. Let's go back to the Greek. We, we exalt in hope of the glory of God. Exalt in Greek is meaning living with one's head held up high. You get that picture? It's, you're not walking down the street with your head down low and you don't have the right to look anybody in the eye and you're a wretch and you're dirty and you're unclean and you're like a leper. It, it doesn't mean that. It means to walk down the street with your head up high and you're proud of something. Well, isn't pride a sin? Well, it depends on what you're taking pride in. In this case, we exalt, we exalt, the apostle says, in hope of the glory of God. From a particular vantage point, by having the right base of operation, and this is uh, Greek commentary, meaning exalt, from a particular vantage point, By having the right base of operation to deal successfully with a matter, the believer can boast in the glory of God. He's boasting in the glory of God. The the Greek word likely comes from a root meaning neck, or what holds the head up. Figuratively, and this is important, it it refers to living with God-given confidence. It refers to living with God-given confidence. Confidence isn't in ourselves. Our confidence is in our, in our sinful ability to keep God's law or to be obedient to God or submit to God or to love God or to love our neighbor. That's not where the, the, the heading, holding our head up high is from. No, it's, it's faith that God will do these things as he has done them for us in justifying us in his courtroom by taking our sins and placing them on Christ and Christ's righteousness placing that on us in the same way as we walk in faith, as we've been introduced to God and the peace of God through faith, that everything is clean, now there's a walk attached to it. And that walk is to be exalting in God. You know, the temptation is we have to exalt in something. It's just the nature of man. Some part of it is good. Some is evil. The sinful part exalts in self. But we have to exalt in something because God made us to exalt in him because he's the good one. He's the one who created something from nothing and brought us into being when we didn't exist. He's the one who gives life. He's the creator. He's beneficent. He's, he's giving. He's loving. And it only stands to reason That the created should exalt in the one who created him. Sin has changed all that. We we exalt in ourselves. Yeah, that's not a good thing. One more point in this Greek word. In the middle voice, the subject is both the cause and the focus, the agent and experiencer of a verbal action. So there's an action going on in every sentence. We understand that. There's a verb, you know. And that action in the, in the middle voice, and this exalt is always in the middle voice, this, the, the, the action and the one who experiences the action is the person of faith. We exalt in hope of the glory of God. We exalt in faith in the future of God's glory. It's going to be revealed. His holiness is going to be revealed. And holiness... The glory of God is holiness. In, in Isaiah chapter 6, the angel is standing at the doorway and the temple is filled with the glory of God as his train, just his train, at the end of his robe is filling the temple. And Isaiah can't enter because of the glory of God and there's an angel there and the angel is speaking and he's saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty or the Lord of hosts the Lord of the heavenly army. The world is filled with your glory. We would expect him to say, holy, 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 the world is filled with your holiness. No, he says he's filled with your glory because that's what glory is. Glory is the fullness of God's holiness, the revelation of God's holiness. It's on display. Now, it's on display best on the cross. It's on display where we see the unselfishness, true self-sacrificing love of God in Christ for us. Now that, that glory has been eternal. It's before anything was created, before anything was conceived of in the mind of God, whatever that means. It, was, it existed in eternity in God as the Father loved the Son, and the Son loved the Father, and the Holy Spirit loves the Father, and the Son, and the Father and the Son loved the Holy Spirit. In this trinity, in this Godhead of three persons, the only God in any religion that actually is able to love because there's three persons in one God. All the cults and all the religions believe in many gods, or they believe in one God. If they believe in one God, and not as a trinity. All the cults of Christianity, they all believe in that God. God loves within the Godhead. He's, he takes glory. He does not take glory as we do. We take it to ourselves. The Father takes the glory for the Son. The Son takes the glory for the Father. The Holy Spirit writes a book in such a manner that you fail hardly see the Holy Spirit because he wants to give all glory to the Father and the Son. This is glory not of a human kind, let alone a sinful kind. This is a glory that God is creating in humanity, that's the purpose, but this is his glory. So when this exaltation is in the, this, this faith is in the middle voice, believers are the ones holding their heads up high. We exalt, we hold up our heads. They hold up their heads up high in hope or faith in the future of the glory of God. Believers are the agent By faith, they're holding up their heads and they're the recipients of the glory of God. The recipients of the revelation of God's glory. The the recipient as well as the one exercising the faith. This is really, really important for us to see. But because it's all about the glory of God. It's not about our glory. It's not about our goodness. We've just gone through chapters in Romans that refer to the sinfulness of man. Sinfulness, first of all, a pagan sinfulness, just depicting the way man just degrades, the, the the natural course of sin is to be degraded, as in chapter 1. In chapter 2, a conscience, which makes us guilty because we know right from wrong, but we do it anyway. And then in 3, under the law of God, as it's revealed and written by Moses, and we continue on in this sin until it's, The climax at the end of three is that for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none that seek God. There's none that seek after God. There's none that love God. It's all about sin, 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 sin. So in Romans 4, 21, and being fully assured that what God has promised, he was able also to perform which he did on the cross. We understand this main point. Get this. This is really important. Saving faith produces good words, works. S- saving faith produces good works. Once a person is saved. Good works do not produce saving faith. Now that's the, se- that's a di- separate, that's the difference between eternal life and eternal punishment in hell. It's the, it's the difference between the truth and a lie. It's the difference between human pride and exulting in the glory of God. Saving faith trusts in the promises of God. It trusts in the promise of God that he fulfilled on the cross and in the resurrection from the dead. This is what saving faith produces. It produces the good works which follow. Good works do not produce saving. Look at 2 uh, Corinthians chapter 5, 11-15. If you're driving, of course, you're not going to do that. <clears throat> if you're able to look at your Bible, if you have it in front of you, 2 Corinthians 5, 11-15 makes this astounding st- statement. We are not commending ourselves to you again. Verse 12, actually. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but we are giving you an opportunity to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart we understand what the pride is we understand taking pride is taking pride in the in the glory of god that and what he's producing in his people now those who take appearance to take pride in appearance they're still looking at men they're still in the on the on the wrong track Verse 14, for the love of God control, controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live will would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose on their behalf. And this is getting into a really important truth, that Christ's love controls us. Because we we conclude that one died for all. No one is righteous, not even one. Christ is righteous, and his death accomplishes the righteousness of every single person who's made righteous. Those outside of that faith, that exaltation in the glory of God, those people are not justified. And he died for all so that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died. They understand the exaltation, holding up the head in what the glory of God accomplishes, what what the promises of God accomplishes in the heart and in the mind and in the life, and that's where the exaltation lies. Christ died and rose again for newness of life. He died to put up the, the old life to death. He rose to raise it up, and that's where we're going. As we're going to be working through 5, concluding, this is where Paul went as he goes into 6 and 7 and 8. He's going from death to resurrection of life. So, commending others is another way of acknowledging the good work of God. The love of Christ is for all. We are one body, one people, all saved by Christ. We no longer live for ourselves, we live for others, recognizing that Christ is redeeming men, he's saving men, he's transforming men, and we're living for one another, we're not living for ourselves. This is the difference between us and God, and this is what causes the world to be evil. Selfishness, self exaltation self-centeredness all self-glory. It's all pride. It's all ego. It's all competition. None of it is any good. It all has to be ditched, put to death, which it was on the cross. We can't put it to death. Christ put it on the cross. We live by faith in what he did for us 2,000 years ago. And now, the same way, let us live in newness of life. So what then, let's ask this question, what is the proof that we live not for ourselves? Verse 3 of chapter 5, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Us. this is different perspective first of all proves that we are not living for ourselves and then living that perspective is the final proof which without which there is no proof no matter what you think it's the transformation of living that is the final proof which god will judge on that day and indeed he knows already and the hearts of those whom he's redeemed, whether it's starting up and it's getting going. Let's look at a few things. The proof of unselfish living is that we live for God through him. Not through ourselves, not self-effort, self some manufactured holiness. No, this is living for God, through God. Two, God always replicates himself, he reproduces himself. If he's reprodu- reproducing himself, there's going to be a change. If that change isn't taking place, the reproduction isn't taking place. Three, we become okay with tribulation because of what it produces. What does tribulation produce? Well, he says it right in in this verse, in these verses. It, it produces perseverance. Perseverance produces and... An, And this change produces proven character. Hope, love of God, becomes more important than our own selfish, self-appointed expectations. Because that's what he says. He says, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given us. And hope, he says, does not disappoint. There's nothing to disappoint because everything that happens is for divine purpose. This is really hard to live. But as we try to put our faith in Christ, we see glimpses of it. It begins to take part in our life. And we start to recognize when we're disappointed, you know what, this is, this is a false expectation. This isn't from God. This attitude that I'm possessing isn't from God. All things work together for the good of those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. What's well, his purpose? To be conformed to the image of Christ. Therefore, the love of God when it produces something, it pro- it produces perseverance, proven character, hope. The love of God becomes more important. It produces it does not disappoint. Why? Because the love of God is poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. A love for God overrides and overrules any disappointment because Lord, because God because life is hard. You lose a loved one. God forbid a parent loses a child. We all as children lose parents. Death is part of our existence. When these things take place as Christians, we're not disappointed. We see we have an eternal perspective. People with an eternal perspective are not disappointed. They may they can be hurt, they can suffer through loss, but they overcome it. They come out the other side. They see, they walk in the light. Next, he introduces faith apart from the law so we will understand that salvation does not originate with ourselves but in God. This is a very, very important point. We have peace with God as we have our introduction into a relationship with God through faith in the promise of God. Therefore, it makes perfect sense that he would continue in our condition in light of God's greatness and benevolence. What do I mean by that? Well, we're going to read Romans 5, 6, or 11. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man. For though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us in while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ to whom we have received the reconciliation. So he's laying it out again, only this time, He's taking it and understand, so that we might understand how God demonstrated his love, that while we were sinners, he died. He didn't wait for us to get good. He didn't wait for us to perfect our lives. He didn't wait for us to start living the Christian life as some teach. I wish I'd, I didn't hear people say those things. Because I, well, I mean, you want to cry for people. They have the gospel in their hands. They have this, this book that's declaring unequivocally that God died for sinners. He justifies sinners. He makes sinners righteous in his sight. He proves it through, through Abraham, who was justified before circumcision, before the giving of the law. As you go through Romans, this is the point. The point is he was justified. He was made righteous. He was cleansed in God's sight, which is the only thing that matters. The fact that works began to grow up later is the proof that faith produces works. Works do not produce faith. Men are not they are not made righteous in God's sight by the works. The works come forth from God, not from us. That's the point. The person who glorifies himself by thinking he can earn his way to heaven or he has to do works to get to heaven is not glorifying God. He's not exalting in God. He's exalting himself. He's exalting himself and he's exalting himself. He's not holding up his head in the glory of God. He's holding up his his head in in himself. For by grace are ye saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not as as a result of works. So no man would boast, not boast in himself, but exalt in God. That's the whole point of grace and justification by faith alone apart from works. My dear Catholic friends, I'm telling you this along with Jehovah Witnesses and all the cults. I'm speaking to you all out of love. Hear the words of Paul in Romans chapter 4 and chapter 5. Lastly, and we're going to conclude this sermon on this point, and we'll pick it up next week. Therefore, verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin. And so death spread to all mankind, because all sinned therefore through how many men one man sin sin entered the world that's adam and death through sin the wages of sin the penalty of sin is death you ever see a man who's not died he's thousands of years old you know he didn't sin but you're never going to see that you're going to see that the average life is 70 years now And people live 70, 80, maybe 90, or even 100, but then they die. Why? Because of sin. So death spread to all mankind to show all sin. I mean, it's just, take the blinders off. For unto the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not counted against anyone where there is no law. Because, see, people don't see the law, they have the conscience, they just go their way. They don't understand exactly what God is demanding except in their conscience, which is twisted because of sin. We live in a self-delusion and self-deception. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. Death was proving men were sinning even though man wouldn't see it himself, even over those who had sinned in the likeness, had not sinned in the likeness of the violation committed by Adam. Adam, don't take from the true tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve never got, I'm not sure if she got the word, I don't think she got the word from Adam, but she certainly got the word from the devil who said don't eat. She Actually she did, what am I saying? She did know that she should not eat. And she did eat. And when she did eat, she sinned and Adam followed suit. He sinned. They both sinned. They they sinned irrespective of what God had said independently, and they became independent, and we all became independent sinners. Now, Adam is a head of the human race that fell into sin, and he's the cause of it, and that's where Paul is going in in these words. Through one man, sin entered into the world, and all sinned. So now, if, if, if Adam hadn't been there, if you had been instead, and he came from you instead of you coming from him, the thing, same thing would have taken place. We're a race of people. Whether you want to believe that or not, there's two races in the world. There's the, the race in Adam, and there's the race in Christ. And there are families within that race, but it's all one human race. We're all human. I mean, unless you want to think of yourself as a dog or a horse or some other, some other kind of animal, you're not. You're not. You're a human being. And whether we want to acknowledge it or not, we're all human beings, we all sin, we all die, we're all made in the image of God, we all have a commonness about us in this race that is undeniable. With all the little differences there are in the variations in personalities and the way God is just great in complementing mankind with variations, it's one race. God is three persons in one God. We are one race in many kinds of personalities and types, but one human race. And So he goes on in verse 15, but the gracious gift is not like the offense, for if by the offense the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God, and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one offense, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the gracious gift arose from many offenses resulting in justification. Just, we'll, we'll take this up more next time. But right now, there's one sin and all become sinners and all die. That all becoming sinners went to multitude of sins. Jesus died once. And in his death, he paid the price For all those sins. So in verse 17 says gracious. 17 says for if. By the offense of the one. Death reign through the one. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace. And of the gift of righteousness reign. In the life through the one Jesus Christ. So he dies. He pays the price on the cross. One death Covering a multitude of sins. For all the multitudes of the people for whom he died. All those sins are covered. All those sins are cleansed. All those sins are forgiven. They're they're cast into the depth of the sea by the one act of one man. So there's the race in Adam and there's the race in Christ. We are one human race. And by this, those who are in Christ, they receive the gift of death and life. Everything washed away in death. Everything raised in newness of life. In Christ's life, one man and one man. So you see, there's a unity here that God is shooting for. There's a unity here that you can't uh, av- avoid if you want. If you put your trust in the Word of God, if you put your trust in the truth of God, then you recognize this fact. That there's one race in Adam and one race in Christ and justification is through the one man. It's not through you and I. It's not through your good works. It's not through your faith as if that faith came from you, as if there was some free will that you made a choice and by that choice you got saved, as if your faith was ultimately free, as if your freedom, your free will was ultimately free. Your, free, your, your will is not ultimately free. First of all, you're, bo- you're in bondage to sin. Therefore, a man is unwilling and unable to be obedient to the law of God. Romans 8, 13. Secondly, this will is limited. I mean, I can make a choice. I can walk out my room right now, open the door, and I can go into the kitchen. I cannot walk to the moon. I can't fly above the mountains. There's a gazillion things that I can't do by the choice of my will. God, on the other hand, is ultimately free. God is completely free. God can free is can do whatever he wants. He's free to do whatever he wants. He is completely free. Now this is true in salvation as well. We are not free to save ourselves. We can't just walk out of our sin. And therefore we look back and we say, look, I made a choice for God. And now I gotta you see this pin on my shoulder, on my breast here. The, the, my lapel, this, this medal right here says, I entered heaven by my own will. That's never going to happen for anyone. We're going to go into heaven by the work that Jesus Christ paid on the cro- cross because he's the eternal God who put on human flesh and his almighty God who is ultimately, completely, eternally righteous and holy without sin, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we may be made the righteousness of God in him. That is how salvation works. And no other way. Because it's what God said. I'm not saying it. I'm just repeating it. I'm just quoting it. That's what God said. All through his word, he says the same thing. So where does our exaltation come from? It comes from trusting God and what he has said. What is the object our faith, the word of God? It's written and God has... Done more than right the way to do it. He's given us a promise. And apart from receiving the promise and receiving what he has done, you can't be saved. And I don't care how much you think through it, you can't think your way to heaven. You can only believe your way to heaven, and that's a gift of God. So if you don't have the gift, if you're only thinking right now, get down on your knees and start praying. Start by saying, Lord, I'm a sinful man and I can't save myself. I can't make this happen. I'm lost. I'm helpless. I can't, I, I'm going to go to hell apart from you. Lord, I need you now. Lord, save my soul. Lord, do this work in my heart. And trust that God will do that. And if God is creating that prayer, if God is energizing you as he does everything else in life, everything, you will be saved. Just trust that. Just trust. On the other side, it's going to seem like you did it, but God will have done it. He's keeping your heart beating. He's keeping your lungs filled with air. He's keeping your mind working right now. He's doing all that. What's the difference? So now trust him that he'll do this as well. He'll give you the faith you need to be saved. And you'll be resurrected in newness of life. You'll be a new creation in Christ. You can look forward to heaven. You can have peace and joy and contentment and love. And you can look forward to an eternity when there will be no more death, no more suffering, no more pain, only glory, the glory of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it's a, it's a joy and a privilege to share your word because your word is the truth. It's a privilege to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ because he's the only good person who's ever lived who's good in and of himself. We're thankful that we receive goodness in our souls, in our minds, in our hearts. We're grateful for regeneration for the rebirth for being given a new heart and a new life and a new purpose for living and purpose for a living that means something we're thankful and give a, and have appreciation for exalting in the Lord Jesus Christ and in God Almighty who has done this good work of the gospel the good news of salvation in Christ thankful appreciative Thankful again Lord we just give you the praise And the honor and the glory And I pray Lord for those who hear this Who might be considering The good work of God The gospel that saves men's souls Lord I pray Any who might hear this Who are still outside the saving work of Christ They may come in and find peace They might find protection For the wrath Of the righteous God that's coming John the Baptist said it, flee the wrath to come. I pray anyone hearing and in that condition would flee the wrath to come and come into the peace that can only be known through the Lord Jesus Christ. My my peace I give to you. Take my yoke upon upon you and learn of me, for I am lowly in spirit you shall find rest for your souls. Lord, give rest to the hearers as they take upon them your burden, the burden that you carried of humility. It's a burden for us. It was a burden for you when you, you carried pride away on the cross because we don't know what it is to be humble. But by taking that yoke, We learn your humility. We learn what it is to be truly humble and submit to salvation, which is produced by God alone, just like everything else. And that includes saving faith. Lord, bless the people, the hearers of this, so they might be blessed with saving faith. I ask these things in Jesus' name, for your honor and your glory.